Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to OMD Daily. This is a conversational interview today, not my usual monologue chat. And today's conversation is with Will Matthews, the professor of culture at G Adventures. G Adventures is a travel company founded 30 years ago with the headquarters in Toronto, but with offices globally with 1,000-plus employees, both full-time and part-time. From its 4.5 Glassdoor rating, that's 4.5 out of 5, to the unusual titles, like the fact that the CEO stands for Chief Experience Officer, used by G Adventures' frontline tour guides, so there's many CEOs in the company, also to how they have a EQ-focused interview in ball pits, to having global leadership camps all over the world and educating employees on how to read financial statements. And these are not just people in finance, but even like engineering and customer satisfaction, etc. G Adventures invests heavily into investing in people. In our chat with, in my chat actually with Will, so we explore a little about Will's transition from IT to leading culture at G Adventures and the various tactics and lessons he's experienced in leading G Adventures to invest in his people. It's kind of how we uh, met, I'd say a few a year ago or so, and that's how we we always used, we'd always geek out in talking about how uh, Will and I both love various tactics. And this time we kind of go deeper into what G Adventures does and what's worked before. So this has been a super informative chat for me. And I really do hope that you'll take something out of it as well. And just for kind of full disclosure, this was a previously recorded interview in preparation for the launch of the podcast. And so the date isn't necessarily what it usually is where it's the recording the day before. But without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Will. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Today, my guest is Will Matthews, the professor of culture at G Adventures. Hey, Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. And for our audience who may not be familiar with G Adventures, um, as well as your title, professor of culture, both could be very unique for the audience who's a first time <laughs> listener. Um, can you explain the company as well as your position? Sure. So uh, G Adventures is uh, a uh, small group travel um, we sort of specialize in what used to be referred to, I guess, as adventure travel, um, but really it's more about traveling off the beaten path. Um, and we're kind of pioneers in the space of what we refer to as community tourism. So to make sure that um, the experience that you're getting is local and authentic, but also making sure that the dollars that you spend um, are staying in country as much as possible. Uh, and we actually do a tremendous amount of research to make sure that um, we're having as much of a positive uh, social, economic, and environmental impact in, in the communities that we visit as possible. Um, and so that's kind of us in a nutshell. We, we operate uh, hundreds of tours around the world on all seven continents. Um, and um, basically for anyone from looking for the, the backpacker type of experience 
through to, you know, somebody who's hung up their backpack and are looking for a little bit more of a, a softer landing uh, and everything in between. Got it. And I think the company's been around since 1990, right? So yeah, exactly. So we're, years. we're into our 30th anniversary um, and it's grown considerably since we got started. I mean, we, we really sort of focused on uh, Latin America when we launched and now we, we really are a global travel company. And you personally, you're the professor of culture. And so can you kind yes. of talk about what that means? And it's a, it's a very unusual title. For... Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I mean, one of the things that we uh, recognized in the company is that, um, you know, titles, um, there's certainly the, the official title so that people understand what that looks like from a, you know, uh, apples to apples comparison if you're looking at roles in different companies. Um, but realistically, a title is a great opportunity to start a conversation. And so uh, we were sort of encouraged to come up with our own titles for our positions. Um, and so uh, I've been involved on the culture side of the business for quite some time uh, and love to talk about it. And I always wanted to be a professor. So uh, here we are, professor of culture uh, at G Adventures. Um, so it, by day, uh, what that looks like is I'm um, a learning specialist. Uh, and develop a lot of our training materials in-house. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves ab about at uh, G Adventures is how much stuff we handle in-house. So we uh, value our culture so much, it would be very difficult for us to kind of outsource um, the training uh, or the engagement pieces uh, for any of that. Sort of what we'll do is we'll develop all of that in-house, including our leadership training, our management training, uh, and then anything that uh, pertains to performance management, talent management, and then the usual sort of nuts and bolts of how to actually accomplish uh, your job. So whether it's product training or systems training and that sort of thing. Got it. And I think you started your career not in the culture side, but on the technology side, right? Exactly. Yeah. So many, many, many years ago, uh, when I had a, a whole lot less gray hair, I was um, in the IT side of things. So I actually graduated from University of Toronto with a degree in uh, human computer interaction, um, going into what I anticipated was going to be the evergreen industry of multimedia back when that was still a thing. Um, and, and it's since evolved and, and you see it everywhere now. Um, but I kind of did a little bit of hopscotch early on from that into uh, information technology for internet service providers and software companies. Um, and during the dot-com bubble burst scenario, um, I started doing a little bit of contract work and then found a, a tiny little classified ad in the newspaper when those were still a thing as well. And uh, said it was a, a really cool company uh, that was looking for uh, an IT person and uh, looked them up on Google and uh, applied and turned out to be an awesome travel company uh, and, and sort of started off there as their lone dedicated IT person uh, back when it was probably about 25 people in the head office. Wow. And so when you joined, it was around 25 people. But how many people work at G Advisors, IG Adventures now? Yeah. So um, as of uh, January of this year, our headcount was uh, in the neighborhood of about I would say 310 in uh, the head office, but then globally um, through a number of offices, uh, we were looking at about uh, 600 or so um, uh, 
in the office and then another thousand or so in the field uh, actually operating our tours. Gotcha. And on, the, on, on that topic of, you know, the unusual titles as well, the people that work on the field, like the tour operators, they're called the chief experience officers, right? And they exactly. they get the title of CEO. And yep. I'm curious, on what, what kind of, um, what was like the internal t- like decision behind like the meaning of titles in that way where, you know, Bruce, the founder of the company, like, chose to give the CEO title to the people on the, on the field, like running the tours and the kind of, I guess, philosophy behind all that. Yeah. So uh, I would say it was around 2007, 2008 is when Bruce recognized that um, certainly within the travel space, but I think it's true of probably a lot of companies in competitive industries. um, We were looking for um, a fairly unique differentiator. Um, So there's kind of a glass ceiling to how well you're going to run an Inca trail trip. Uh, and we'd love to be able to say that all of our competitors run terrible trips, but they don't. They run great trips as well. Um, and so the way that we chose to differentiate was really in terms of the culture. Um, and part of that process, we, we sort of called it the cultural revolution um, in 2008. And that's when Bruce recognized that that title of CEO has a tendency to be seen as, uh, you know, it belongs to the most important person in the company, so to speak. And um, he recognized that as somebody who is, is uh, responsible for the vision of the company, he's probably not gonna meet 99.9% of our travelers. Uh, and on the flip side of that, our CEOs, our, our tour leaders at the time, uh, they meet a lot of our travelers. And so really the most important people in the company were those that were interacting directly with our travelers because they were the uh, face of the company. And so with that recognition, he sort of decided it was time for him to hang up his CEO title. So now he's uh, generally referred to either as you know, founder or the captain, uh, sometimes even the honey badger, which has its own story. Um, but um, everybody else uh, in the field uh, is now the, the CEO. So if anybody ever calls and says, uh, you know, can I speak to the CEO? We're happy to say, yeah, sure, no problem, which one? Um, and so it, it's, uh, an opportunity for us to kind of express the importance of that, uh, frontline position. Mm-hmm. And in relation to the, the culture of the company, what, what do you think, um, is G Adventure's reputation right now in relation, in relation to his company? Like, what do you think that if I, if I were to ask five people in the organization at random, what mm-hmm. do you think, um, how do you think they would describe the culture of G Adventure's as? Um, I mean, uh, so it's interesting, actually. I think it would depend on who you ask and how long they'd been with the company because um, culture, you know, capital C culture has kind of evolved for us a little bit over the years. Um, and initially it started off being about, you know, being a travel company. Uh, we do want to promote fun on our tours, obviously. And so fun has always sort of been a big part of our uh, internal culture as well. And so you see the, the usual suspects like the foosball table and the popcorn machine and that kind of thing. Um, and initially, some of that got kind of lumped into when somebody said culture, they would think about those things. Um, and then as uh, that evolved and, and we started thinking more about engagement in a more intentional way, it, it started to include um, that uh, discretionary effort that people put in and sort of the... Um, willingness to sort of go the extra mile uh, and and be real customer obsessed 
uh, in our role. And so that became part of the culture as well. Um, and in more recent years, uh, things like being an innovation culture and being a leadership culture and a, a, a people-centric culture uh, has really factored in there too. So I think if you ask anybody, one of the things that they'll raise is our five core values. Uh, I don't think that there's a single person that works for the company, um, even you know, past or present, that, that wouldn't be able to name our core values. And, and that's one of the things that our travelers pick up on is how consistent that message is, whether they're traveling you know, to base camp in Nepal or uh, you know, checking out uh, California. Uh, they, they see their own local flavors, but all with the same uh, foundation of that G culture. Gotcha. And what, what are the five, co- five core values for someone who's not familiar? Yeah. So our five core values are uh, we love changing people's lives, lead with service, create happiness and community, do the right thing, and embrace the bizarre. Um, and those all have um, sort of an equal application internally and externally. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of elements to travel in there, um, but there's also a lot of uh, internal conduct in there as well. And what the, what's kind of unique about the way that we came up with our core values is that it was created by a cross-section of the business. Uh, so rather than it just being Bruce or you know, the C-suite coming down with the stone tablets from the mountain uh, saying, these are your core values, uh, it was an opportunity for us to kind of collaborate on it. And there was a little bit, obviously, of, of him shaping things and kind of leading people uh, to the water, but there was um, a lot of collaboration in terms of crafting them and making them work. Because one of the challenges for a global company is you can't have a very nuanced set of uh, you know, long list of, of values because it's got to be easy to translate, it's got to be easy to execute. Um, and so for us to be able to make it work, we wanted to make sure that they were simple, that they uh, were equally applicable internally and externally, um, and that they uh, were something that would be clear how to uh, actually follow those values. And, and none of those five core values are, are typically very difficult to stand behind. So I think that's why people sort of resonate with them. Hmm. And in, in kind of branching off of the cross-functional nature of how the core values were d- developed, how how does the kind of org how did you design the org structure of G Adventures? Because you guys are a global company as well. And so the previous also talks about how there's also a lot of kind of remote nature to the work as well. And so I'm curious how how you approach designing the organizational structure. Like do you is there even like segregation by like different functions? Like in the traditional companies have finance, accounting finance, like engineering, et cetera. Is that how things are broken up with like a pyramid structure? Some companies, are co- they say they're completely flat. We don't know if they actually are flat, but mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of different ways companies get creative as they also get bigger. And for, for you guys, you, you are a global company with people everywhere across the world and you have a lot of people too. So I'm curious how you design the structure you have now and how that's kind of evolved into this yeah. current structure. Yeah, so I think we've probably uh, done the same thing at some point in our history where we've said, you know, we're a, a totally flat company. Uh, and I think the the trap that people fall into there is that there's flat uh, from a um, structural perspective and then flat from a reporting perspective. Um, and so I would say that um, you don't generally see a lot of power politics uh, happening in our company. Uh, like any business, there's always going to be the odd 
incident here and there, but what I would say is, is much more um, uh, apparent is that anybody can really contribute in a, a very meaningful way within the organization. So um, beyond just sort of the usual open door policy that a lot of managers will have, uh, we will quite often solicit ideas from all over the organization. So as an example, we have a program called the Generator Program. And it's basically a think tank session that people can apply for um, and we'll pose uh, you know, a, a real world business challenge that we're facing right now. And then whoever wants to apply, whether they're you know, people that work the phones, whether they're somebody in finance, it's you know, somebody in operations or product or IT or wherever, um, they can all apply for this. And we select a, a cross-functional team uh, that really only can meet via Zoom um, because of uh, geographic distances and they troubleshoot that problem or they come up with ideas for that problem um, and it's it's open to anybody and then they have kind of a, a mentor team from senior uh, leadership to make sure that what they're suggesting is feasible and affordable and all that sort of thing but um, yeah it's it, so I would say from a, a, a structural perspective we're quite flat um, but from a reporting perspective, because there is so much information to go through, um, that's where there's a, a lot more complexity. And so um, we actually kind of uh, organize somewhat around region and then somewhat around uh, function. Um, and so recognizing that the needs for all of our tours in, say, um, South Africa will be very different than the needs for our tours that are running in Thailand. Um, and, and that sort of stuff. So uh, we'll have um, a series of uh, regional managers that overlook the operations for uh, that sort of thing, strictly from a you know, boots on the ground kind of perspective and, and all the nuts and bolts of an actual tour. Um, and then some of the more shared services tend to get centralized in one of our larger offices. So um, larger offices being in uh, Toronto, in Boston, in London, uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, I'm probably forgetting one and they're going to get mad at me later on. But the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the general uh, the flow of that. And then in each of the, those regions, it sort of breaks down further. So um, structurally, I would say it's most complex in that operations side of things um, because they have the most moving pieces to worry about. Uh, and then for things like finance and IT and all, all the usual shared services, uh, those are a lot easier to centralize. So. Got it. Yeah, because it, it, I think when I when I study organizations, there a lot of them, a lot of the successful ones, commonly kind of quote like the the Dunbar's one hundred and fifty uh, mm -hmm. number, where eventually they have to kind of reach a point of decentralization where you start making certain leaders accountable for various business units and they kind of operate like mini companies within a larger company or sometimes they just completely spin off. And yeah. how do you kind of instill that kind of ownership mindset into people who would run different kind of like regional units or even um, like a technical division, for example? Yeah. Um, so I would say a lot of that comes from our ability. We're, we're pretty proud of the fact that in many of our, certainly on the operation side, in a lot of the senior positions, we've done a lot of promoting from within. Mm -hmm. um, and so as an example, our VP of global operations is uh, somebody who used to be a CEO. Um, and so, and, and we see that sort of throughout that uh, chunk of the hierarchy. 
So these are people that know exactly what uh, the people in the field are going to be experiencing and all the challenges and that sort of thing. So it's, it's pretty easy for them to kind of take ownership over the right kinds of issues and then call in for assistance on, on the ones where they know it's going to impact a, a broader uh, cross-section of the business. Um, so that's a part of it. The other part of it, I would say, is in the way that we talk about leadership within the organization. And um, we sort of start talking about being a leader within the company right at the orientation training. Um, and, and we sort of talk about how uh, leadership doesn't have to be anything more complicated than leading by example um, and sort of recognizing that everybody is feature complete when it comes to being a leader. Uh, it's simply a matter of choice at that point um, and choosing to step up and, and do the hard work um, in terms of, of taking ownership of a problem uh, and accountability for it. That's something that we talk about very early on in the development of any of the, the staff at the company. Um, and so I, I'd say a combination of those two things makes it a lot easier for us to be able to um, delegate things to a, a region and, and they run almost autonomously as their own sort of chunk of the business um, and then share best practices whenever it makes sense and, and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, they're, they're very capable people and we've noticed that actually quite a bit. We, we had a couple of acquisitions in the last uh, two or three years, I would say. And in working with those uh, teams, one of the, the consistent bits of feedback that we get is how uh, smart our people are and how quickly they've been able to sort of advance a lot of their own um, you know, development and, and uh, program design because we've already been through a lot of challenges that they were just starting to get into and we were able to help them kind of leapfrog some of that stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, we've got amazing people and, and people is definitely uh, core to everything that we do. Um, and so I think that that's what's made it so easy for us to, I mean, there's obviously still challenges, but it's a lot easier than probably other organizations in that sort of space for, for being able to uh, trust their teams in that way. Mm -hmm. And in regards to like hiring people internally, like grooming people to, you know, rise up and get into like, go into the higher ranking like executive positions, it almost seems common sense. Like at least for me, like I always felt it was very common sense for that to be the case, but I found that that's also more, not, not as common as I, as I would hope to hope it to be. Like, I think even at like C-suite levels, um, a recent interview I heard with uh, Jerry Colonna on his podcast was about the succession plan of like Etsy, the online public company there, and how they've they brought like a CEO in from the outside, and that didn't work out, and then they eventually learned to groom one of the kind of operations people into like the CEO position, and they learned that lesson publicly as like the company was kind of floundering for for you. Did, was that a lesson you had to kind of learn through like the painful way as well when you kind of brought people from the outside and it just didn't work out and then you realize ah maybe people actually who know more about the business because they put their blood sweat and tears into it they'll probably understand it better <laughs> yeah and i think it, it kind of cuts both ways in some ways like we definitely learned that uh particularly when you factor in the complexity of our business on its own is already challenging i mean 
some of the record short tenures that we've had have come from people that have looked at the size of our business, come in, uh, found out how actually complicated it is, and then not come back after their lunch break, um, just because they kind of underestimated how much was going on there. Uh, and those were in the early days before we knew how to sort of set expectations around that kind of thing. Um, but um, yeah, I would say that you've got a lot of people that really need to kind of grow up with the business in order to understand that sort of thing. And it's not impossible to hire externally. And, and um, to be fair, because we've grown so organically in some ways, um, hiring externally does help us expose some of our blind spots that, um, you know, we're the stuff that we're aware of, we're really good at. Uh, but it's some of those things that maybe we didn't even think to think about this sort of thing that um, bringing in fresh blood has is, is sort of helped us uh, see those pictures better. So having a balance between the two has been very helpful. Um, but generally, uh, as an example, I mean, our um, new appointed uh, COO of the company um, is some, we had been doing a lot of searching for the right kind of person. Um, and talk to a lot of different people and, and uh, you know, Bruce had done a whole bunch of interviews over the course of years and years and ultimately landed on there's nobody that gets us better than, uh, you know, one of our own people. And so um, Jeff Russell, who is now our, our CEO, um, has been growing up with the business from day one uh, practically and just knows everything inside and out. So um, that's one of those examples. But then again, you know, when you take a look at some of those shared services where, you know, say finance or technology or uh, our talent team, even to some extent, um, we're kind of uh, product agnostic almost in a way. And so it's a little bit easier to bring in uh, people externally there. Um, but it's still a, a pretty solid mix. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a department in the company that didn't have people that had been promoted from the junior ranks. Uh, in management. So uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it helps to have a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And when I think from the outside looking in, usually when people think of, hmm, I wonder if this company has good culture, I think Glassdoor kind of has become one of the de facto ways to look at a company. And when I type in G Adventures in Glassdoor, I, I think I saw like a 4.5 star rating out of five with like 196 reviews because large sample size matters with mm -hmm. these kinds of reviews and what i've learned over time because like, i used to look at also Glassdoor, and i used to make public equity investment theses as well to look at does this company have a good culture and i find that it's kind Glassdoor is one of those things where a positive it's like a positive signaling tool where mm -hmm. most most times when people leave reviews for companies i find that they're usually disgruntled and they'll leave negative reviews so you yep. always kind of expect that but when you see a positive review that's kind of more like a signal in the noise where, oh, that's rare. You usually rarely see companies get positive reviews. And yeah. you, I saw like how G Adventures has like, this is a pretty, it's a pretty good review. 4.5 out of 5 is a very good review, I'd say. And there's 97% approval of Bruce. And for you guys internally, is how do you measure whether the culture is actually good or not? Like, do you yeah. rely on such kind of external um, verifiers or is there a more kind of internal oriented tool that you use? So we do both. Um, I would say uh, for the external side of things, what we're looking at there is really just to sort of help ourselves benchmark where we're at. Um, so it's very easy for us to sort of get 
caught up in our own thing and say, oh yeah, everything's great. Or, wow, this is terrible and, and we really don't know what we're doing. Um, but unless we sort of take a look and see what our other companies going through or, or what are their successes or challenges, um, it's hard for us to sort of, sort of say that on our own. Um, so, but we generally don't go externally to sort of get that um, information of where should we be. It's more so just where are we? Uh, that's the kind of feedback that we look at there. Um, and so we're, you know, we're very proud of our Glassdoor scores and um, we've been very fortunate to uh, be recognized with a number of awards from you know, great places to work or engagement awards and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so we've, we've got that to sort of back up our belief that we're doing something right. Um, and then on the internal side is probably where we get most of our information for uh, what should we be doing. And that comes entirely from our people. So we have a, uh, an internal engagement survey that we do. Uh, we call it the gauge. Um, and it's something that goes to every single person in the company. So whether they work uh, as a tour leader, as, as you know, somebody in the C-suite, if they're working on our ship, if they're you know, anywhere that they, they exist, uh, and we generally have uh, somewhere between an 89 to 95% uh, uh, completion rate uh, because people are that invested in making sure that they, they get heard. And from that is where we'll find sort of what's working well and what has room for improvement or what's the, the currently uh, biggest um, focus for, for where we should be uh, putting our efforts into improving uh, engagement or, or addressing any concerns that people might have. Um, and so between those two things, I think that's how we, we do our best to kind of measure that. And uh, out of that, it's actually created a lot of programs for us as well. So as an example, uh, a few years ago, one of the biggest priorities that people had identified for us was a sense of connection within the organization. So it's a challenge for any kind of multinational company, but uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that as a travel company that talked um, all about making sure that you connect with local communities, we wanted to make sure that our own communities were doing the same thing internally. And so we created something called Connection Camp, uh, where we bring together uh, 75 to 120 people, depending on uh, it's it's a, uh, a competition basically to get into it um, and they're brought to a really cool destination so we've had some in uh, you know India or in Thailand uh, Costa Rica uh, Peru um, and it's just it, it, there's zero work content uh, done at these things it is purely for coming together getting to know each other getting some FaceTime with people from regions that you wouldn't otherwise get a chance to interact with um, and as a result, we saw, you know, a marked improvement in our, our connection scores year over year. So uh, those are the kinds of things and, and the way in which we sort of address that. Uh, but at the end of each one of those engagement survey cycles, we want to make sure that managers are equipped with um, tools to have appropriate discussions with their teams to say, okay, well, it's all well and good that this is how the score is netted out, but what are we actually going to do about this? And so the first uh, order of business for any manager or any team leader following a, uh, one of those cycles is to make sure that they put an action plan together that gets approved by their senior manager um, to make sure that we're actually taking steps and not just sort of putting our finger in the wind and, and seeing what's happening. So, Wow. And how, how long is like the typical cycle, like whether it's the survey cycle or 
I, I don't know if that also kind of correlates with the program that you would implement after like that cycle. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a, it depends type of answer, but um, so the, the cycle itself, we go from one gauge survey to another, it's on an annual basis. And then there's a, a mid-year check-in point called the pulse um, that kind of measures uh, how are we doing based on what we've discovered so far. Um, preferably, we would love to be able to do it more frequently, but it is a bit of a heavy lift to be able to push that survey out to everybody. And so we're actually still exploring different options for um, making it a little bit less cumbersome. But um, then in terms of the response to that, uh, whatever um, kind of ideas fall out of the process, they'll be either consolidated with other teams that have identified the same sort of thing, or uh, the senior management team will look at it and say, like, this is a common theme that the entire organization is looking for. And so then they'll start generating ideas uh, for that sort of stuff. So something like a connection camp would have started at that senior management team and then uh, sort of delegated to some of the smaller teams or uh, you know, something like the generator to figure out, okay, so what's the best way to execute on this? Got it. And if we, kind of, if we start diving deeper into like the people side where we actually think about the systems of um, the systems that you have in place for people, if I even looked at the talent, um, talent side, I, I thought about maybe splitting up the process as there's hiring, developing, and retaining talent. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's the correct way to look at it. You're the expert, not me. So I love your point of view on it. But I was thinking if, if I had, if I separated out into those three segments, is there a particular segment that you think makes a materially bigger difference on the rest of it? So for example, like if you spend most of it, like 80% of your time on talent acquisition, then mm -hmm. does it have a best, the best flow through to development and retention? Or is it more focusing on the development side where if you spend most of the time there, then you see like the best results. How do you think yeah. about it? Yeah, so we actually, um, there's this uh, philosophy that we have in our uh, talent team that looks at the entire employee experience. And we sort of split it out into a lot of those kinds of buckets that you've identified there. So we'll look at it in terms of recruiting. So just, you know, making people aware of our employer brand uh, through to uh, the actual hiring process, uh, onboarding, um, and then sort of developing um, retention and even separation in terms of, you know, making sure that we're offboarding people appropriately as well. Um, and so looking at all of that holistically, it tends to tell you um, how to sort of focus your attention on all these things. So, I mean, we, from my perspective as a, a learning specialist, obviously uh, development looms large on my horizon all the time. Um, but I would say if you are uh, not hiring well and you're not recruiting well, then all of that is for naught because you're kind of bringing in people that will fill a seat well, but they're not necessarily going to be engaged. Um, and so I would say you, you probably don't want to put all your eggs into any one of those baskets um, and do want to take a bit of a step back and think about things like if, if, if you invest heavily in, in all of these things are important. Uh, so it's not to say that any, any one move is wrong. Um, but if you invest heavily on say your development and retention strategies, but aren't paying any attention to what your employer brand is, then you might be attracting all of the wrong people uh, or, you know, none of the best people for you. Um, and so 
all of that development and retention might not be as expensive as it needs to be if you were bringing in you know, the more appropriate candidates in the first place. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a bit of a game of pickup sticks. Like you can't really move one without moving everything else. Um, but I would say that it, probably less important than looking at where to spend the most money. It's, I would say, make sure that you're taking the time to take a step back and looking at that complete employee experience um, and minimally understand what is your employer brand and who, what is, you know, the makeup of your ideal candidate. Um, if you're, you know, a more homogenous business in particular, you kind of want to think about like, what are the, the five characteristics of the perfect employee or, or, or that sort of thing? Um, whatever that looks like. I mean, that's probably not the right label for it, but um, understanding what that is, I think is going to help inform the, the entire uh, employee experience and help you figure out where you need to sort of spend your your time and money and for you the, i don't know if you explicitly have a the dream ideal employees like the five characteristics if if you do that'd be awesome if you can share but if you don't um what what characters ha- have stuck out for people who ended up who still who are succeeding right now at g adventures yeah yeah so well i mean we'll tend to focus on uh, the culture fit stuff because um, the, um, the skills can be taught um, or the, you know, it, the, the raw uh, hard skills, so to speak, are a little bit easier to introduce than the soft skills. Or, and, and I think Seth Godin actually refers to them as the real skills because it's a little bit more um, uh, important than, than people let on. But we do look for those kinds of things. So things like leadership potential, things like um, you know work ethic, obviously, and, and and that kind of thing. But it's it's really like is if this person's really really good at what they do, are they going to be a pain in the ass to work with? Um, because ultimately, that's going to suck all the energy out of the room. Um, and you know, if you go right back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and and you want to get everybody to that apex point where everybody's got their you know best executive function and they're coming up with creative ideas and that sort of thing you're not going to do that if there's somebody in the room who's really really skilled but just you know sucks the ever-loving life out of everything that you do um and so we look for a balance of both and and sort of recognize that um i think that the culture and the um um aspirational side of an individual uh, can often make up for a lack of the, the you know, traditional training or, or hard skill training. Um, and, and so we generally will look at that sort of stuff. As an example, like a lot of our, our CEOs that we've promoted into office roles. So our CEOs, um, some of them are, are extremely well educated from, uh, you know, they've, they've kind of given up a, a lawyer background or that sort of thing because they wanted to go on the road and that sort of stuff. Uh, and then there are other people that uh, at a very young age decided, I just want to get out on the road and, you know, do the Jack Kerouac thing. And, and that's me. Um, and so some people come in with very formal education and other people come in with more of the, you know, worldly education. And um, both have been very good at demonstrating uh, tr- tremendous business acumen and that sort of thing. So uh, it's been very helpful in terms of, of our growth as a business uh, to kind of look at it that way. But 
I, we, we've not really sat down and, and thought about what those key characteristics are that we're looking for, but it's, it's that type of person, I think, that probably thrives most at our company. Mm-hmm. And I think the, in the, if, if someone were to interview at G Adventures, there's the final part that we spoke about before the G Factor interview, which I found to mm-hmm. be very unique. But before, before we touch on that specifically, can you kind of provide an overview of so what is the kind of full process like for talent acquisition? Like, and why did you structure it in that manner? And then we can kind of end off with the G Factor interview where you talk about why that's uh, special. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, it, we're not a very uh, homogenous business, so it, it's kind of role specific, but um, we do a lot of um, uh, sort of recruiting from the, the usual suspects, but also just sort of through universities and that sort of thing, um, anybody anywhere where, where travel might be uh, of an interest. But essentially uh, what makes it a little bit different is the way that we'll talk about the role, um, we try to use language that isn't uh, sort of the, the necessarily the, the, um, the most traditional uh, job descriptions and that sort of thing to sort of highlight the fact that what we're looking for is not just sort of the, the book smarts, but also sort of the, the social side of things. Um, but in general, uh, the the overall goal is to really kind of cast a, a bit more of a focus net. So we won't, uh, depending on the role, we won't often pull in uh, huge numbers of applications as, as some other companies will. Um, and that's kind of by design. Like we're not really looking to find the biggest possible audience with a job uh, description. What we're looking for is the, the deepest uh, sort of uh, well uh, rather than the biggest well, um, and and tr- try to find uh, sort of the talent that um, is maybe a little bit more diamond in the rough, um, where we have the ability to sort of uh, help them grow with us uh, and that sort of thing. But again, I mean, it, it's it's quite different for for each role. But then um, the interviewing process doesn't look necessarily radically different than a, a traditional business, but the number of different touch points that you'll interact with uh, is probably a little bit broader. So instead of it just being the hiring manager, um, you know, it usually involves the entire team or a good chunk of the team. Um, and then um, if it's a more senior position, uh, certainly it would interact with uh, multiple departments. And then, um, as you kind of alluded to, then we've got sort of the, the G factor at the end of the process, which is still, uh, you know, it, it seems a lot more of a, a fun piece of the, the puzzle, but it's just as critical as everything else. And can you explain the G factor interview for people who are not familiar? Like I tried explaining to my friends, it's like a ball pit interview. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So depending on the office where it happens, if it's in any of our biggest offices, um, it does, in fact, happen in a ball pit. So we have a, a room, and it, it, just as it sounds, uh, we got you know all these plastic balls in there, uh, and it's really just designed to be a really fun room. But it also kind of takes you off of the usual game of uh, you know I'm I'm in interview mode um, because we really want to kind of break down the wall a little bit and help to understand who the person really is, and for them to get to know us really well too. So. Uh, the way that it'll work is um, three people from the office in any role, any department, generally not from the same department as the person that uh, applying. Um, and and uh, so, you know, in one of them, we've had a VP, uh, somebody who uh, 
our GCO, the people that worked on the phone, uh, and uh, somebody from IT uh, are sort of the G Factor panel in that case. And it's really just a kind of like a bar chat, like it's an opportunity to get to know somebody outside of the work side of things. Um, but also to kind of get a sense of what is it that they're looking for in a workplace um, and what kind of environment uh, would help them to thrive. Um, and then that panel also has an opportunity to kind of share what they've experienced and, you know, and it's, it's warts and all. So, I mean, we'll talk about the challenges, we'll talk about the, uh, you know, the perks and all that sort of thing. Uh, but really the goal is for both parties, the, the applicant and the, the panel, to sort of get a better sense of each other um, and uh, understand what it'll be like to work there regardless of the role. Um, and if both sides say like, yeah, this sounds really good, then uh, you know, it, it becomes kind of a, a, an official signing offer at that point. Um, but we have had circumstances where even uh, VPs that have applied for the company have gone uh, right through to the G Factor round, and then during that G Factor interview process, um, it was apparent that you know while they were probably really really good at what they did, uh, and and you know good people, uh, they just weren't going to necessarily thrive or gel with um, the way in which uh, we, we work uh, within the industry, and so uh, they they uh, didn't make it through, and as a result, they had to start the, the hiring process back up again for those those positions so um there we take them quite seriously and uh despite the fact that it happens in a ball pit um you know it's just as important as any other set of uh questions that we ask during the interview process mm -hmm. and in regards to the development part where you have you have so many different programs at g adventures that focus on development like you have I think there's like the yearly stipend that people get to invest in their own personal development. You have, I think, the initiatives where you teach other your employees how to read financial statements so they understand what the company is actually doing and how it mm -hmm. generates to dollars and cents. Yep. Um, but from your perspective, what program or programs have been have made kind of this foundational difference in the business's success? Do you think? Um, I think it, well, so our management and leadership programs are quite strong, I would say. Um, actually, last year, I guess it was, um, our leadership track was recognized by Brandon Hall. We um, received a silver award for um, um, one of the most innovative uh, leadership development programs. Um, and again, kind of what we were talking about before, where the way in which we talk about leadership is um, a little bit different or a little bit more all-encompassing than um, sort of the traditional view of leadership is what happens in the C-suite and maybe you're, you know, three steps down from there. Um, but for us, leadership begins from the point that you walk through the door and um, recognizing that anybody in the organization can be a leader, even if, uh, you know, and so we've got a, a series of leadership camps that uh, help people sort of transition from being awesome individual contributors to recognizing, like if I apply a bit more intention to not just uh, nailing everything in my job description and start branching outside of my team or my department or my region or whatever, then I can have a larger impact on the business as a whole. Um, and so that program has done uh, really well for us. And that sort of dovetails with our manager programming um, where 
it's the same idea where recognizing the, one of my favorite questions to ask uh, a room full of managers is, you know, raise your hand if you think that you lead by example. And you'll see some hands kind of tentatively go up. Other people confidently raise their hand and, you know, a few people that just kind of sit on their hand. Uh, and I say, well, those of you that raise your hands, you're right. Uh, everybody else is wrong because as a manager, you're always leading by example. Whether you're doing it well or not is another story. And so, um, you know, whatever examples you're setting, people are going to follow them. Uh, and so with leadership, people will follow you because they want to. As a manager, people follow you because they have to. You're, you're paid to, to lead these people. Uh, and so um, you don't have to be a manager in order to be a leader. Uh, but if you are a manager, then you really have to make sure that you're on your leadership game. Um, and so we talk a lot about that in our management program as well. Um, and then, I mean, beyond all that, it is really just sort of trying to stay on top of all of these, um, you know, the, the trips and that sort of thing. It, it's sort of secondary because it's we our portfolio of, of offerings is always changing. We've got a ton of product training that we'll do as like lunch and learns and that sort of stuff. Um, but it really is helping people understand the business and and putting a little bit of business acumen in everybody so that uh, at the end of the day, you know, if we talk about how well a certain trip is selling, they can appreciate, you know, what percentage of that is going to overhead, what percentage of that is going into, uh, you know, supplier costs and to accommodations and that sort of thing. Uh, and so then that way, whenever we're talking about, you know, profits or, or revenue or whatever, um, whether they're somebody that's working in finance or they're out in the field or they're you know, working in IT, everybody's got at least a, a, a good working knowledge of where each dollar is going uh, for the, the overall business. Mm -hmm. And there's so many, so many factors I want to go d deeper into, but the, fir <laughs> the first factor that I wanted to dig into is you mentioned about how, um, you know, you, you can be a good leader, even though you're not a manager, not a manager, but a manager needs to be a great leader. And mm -hmm. there are definitely cases where some people don't actually want to manage people, right? That might just not be your strength. But there are many times in organizations where if you don't become a manager, then you don't get a higher pay or you don't get the kind of autonomy you want at work. And I think many organizations don't have a clear solution to it. So like when my example is like when, when, I, was, when I used to work at a hedge fund, typically in hedge funds, you have to become a portfolio manager to have more autonomy and get more pay and get equity in the company. Mm -hmm. But my fund was not like that. It was very unique in that where you, you actually had research analysts um, who are traditionally known to be working under, quote unquote, the portfolio manager actually make more than portfolio managers in this fund. And sometimes the analysts had more equity because they saw it as, yeah, like it's not about the title. It's what you do. If you want to just analyze companies all day, then yeah, you should just do that and you should get paid accordingly and you shouldn't be penalized based on your title and if you want to be a manager and you want to talk to clients and you want to lead a team then sure you can do that but just because you have a title doesn't mean you're above anyone and so but our organization was it's definitely smaller than yours and so mm -hmm. I, i'd be curious to know like how how do you guys think about it and how did you kind of land to where you're at yeah so i would say what you're describing is is very much in line of the idea of the traditional sort of management development path versus what is more often now being referred to as like a mastery development path um, and recognizing the need for both. Um, because in reality, management uh, or, or the move into management is less of a promotion and more of almost like a departmental transfer because the, 
the roles or the, the, the expectations of that role are so radically different than what you're leaving behind that, you know, it's, it's like taking somebody from finance and moving them into design or something. Um, it's, it's, it's more akin to that kind of thing than it would be just sort of you're tacking on some extra expectations to your current job description. Um, and so with that in mind, to your point, there's a lot of people that um, believe management is absolutely right for me. And I'm super excited about the, that challenge of helping a team grow and, and perform. Uh, and then there's other people that are, uh, find it very daunting and it's, it's not for them, but what they do want to do is get really good at what they're doing now or find new ways uh, to uh, have a greater return on investment from a, a personal level uh, and have a greater impact on the company. And so we kind of encourage those two types of growth. So there is, for anybody that wants to go into management, we will 100% support them. Um, a lot of our managers will actually allow people to kind of uh, do like a jump seat uh, approach and, and sort of do a bit of a ride along with them to sort of see like this is what a day in my life looks like and, and uh, think about these kinds of things. If, if they're still of interest to you, then let's pursue that path. Uh, and if not, or if people have already self-identified as they don't really want to go down that road, then um, more and more we're developing a bit more of a, a, a rigor around how a team can sort of structure a growth path for individuals on that mastery path. And so we don't want uh, the, the story that I like to sort of share is like, if you look at Wayne Gretzky, arguably the greatest hockey player of all time, um, if he was in a corporate universe, the very first thing that somebody would have done is promote him to be a manager of the team. Um, but we've seen that story already and he didn't make a very good manager of a team, uh, largely because probably he couldn't relate to all of these mere mortals that were you know, playing hockey in the, the usual way as opposed to being like a hockey god. Um, any number of reasons. So there's two problems there. One, you're installing somebody who doesn't have the management skill set into a manager role, so that's bad for the team. And two, you've taken your best player off the ice, uh, and so now there's a double hit. Uh, and so we don't want to create those problems for our teams. So if somebody's really, really good at what they do, but they still want to have a greater impact, then we have uh, something like the, the Next Level program in our uh, company that, that helps people identify if I was... Uh, to dial up what I'm doing for the business and, and having a greater impact, what could that look like without necessarily having to occupy uh, a management box in the org chart? Um, and so uh, a lot of people have been very successful at creating their own boxes on the org chart um, and still sort of, you know, creating a more senior position without having to take on management responsibilities that uh, they agree aren't right for them. And I think this ties really well to even the topic of incentives because the, how like promotion in one way is an incentive right because mm -hmm. the title means something in the company it means sometimes better pay it means sometimes more equity how do how do you how does G adventures and yourself like approach incentives and how do, yeah what kind of what are some examples of systems that you have to promote promote a certain kind of incentive behavior yeah so one of the things i'll call out there just uh, before diving into the, the first part of the question is um, recognizing how dangerous it is to use promotion as a retention strategy. Right. And we see businesses do it all the time and we've fallen, uh, you know, trapped to the, the same sort of thing. Um, and it's that same sort of problem, right? Like not only have you installed somebody who 
is now a manager only because you didn't want to lose them. If they're a crappy manager, the team suffers and they're taken out of a role that they did really well to get recognized for growth in the first place. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about a lot with our managers is don't use promotion as a retention strategy. Um, so alternatively for um, incentivization and that sort of thing, we do look at um, a, a couple of different things. So one is, is that ability to grow in non-traditional ways. Um, and you know, if people, one of the things that we sort of pride ourselves on a little bit is we're very much a show me culture. So rather than just sort of talking a big game, show me what you can do. If you do that though, the company is not stupid. We're going to say like, you are definitely increasing your return on investment right there. And so we're going to compensate you accordingly. Um, but I think what is also very helpful for us uh, that not a lot of companies can necessarily say is we have a very clear idea of purpose uh, and, and sort of a greater cause for the business. And so because we're kind of a social enterprise and, and we have that positive impact on the communities that we visit, we have a tendency to attract a lot of people who are driven by that kind of purpose. Um, and, you know, in any economic downturn, you know, you know, you take a look at somebody like Jim Stengel, who's done some research on purpose-driven businesses, uh, and you'll see that uh, if profit and, and you know, revenue isn't your, your sole bottom line and you're more of a triple bottom line company or, or, or something like that, um, then it's easier to incentivize people with just the work that you're doing almost, right? And, and recognizing like if you're having a positive impact in this community here in you know, Kenya, um, it, it makes it a lot easier to get out of bed in the morning and say, I'm going to work really hard to do my best work uh, because I'm going to have a positive impact, not just for myself or for my team, but for these communities that we visit as an organization. Um, and so that makes it a little bit easier for us as well that, you know, your, your garden variety business isn't always uh, capable of doing. Now that's not saying that they're incapable, but I think that there's a lot of businesses out there that would do well by having a, a chance to sort of sit down and identify what is their greater cause. Um, because, you know, there's no shame. We're, we're a for-profit business. Uh, you know, we like to grow. Um, but there's, uh, I think, a lot of benefit that comes from your ability to grow as an organization. If you do understand, you know, Simon Sinek talks about understanding the why behind your business. Um, and if you can identify that why or that purpose, I think that it becomes easier to incentivize uh, engagement and discretionary effort uh, without having to resort to things like uh, promotion or, you know, simply salary increases and that sort of thing. Cause there's a lot of different ways that you can sort of create benefits for people beyond just sort of the monetary approach. Mm -hmm. And you, we, we touched briefly on like, you know, individuals proving the ROI of them choosing their own path and trying to do different things and how some term programs are benefiting or providing this kind of behavior change. But if you're, and if we were to look at that from kind of a decision point of, you know, when you decide, should we start program X and program Y and what's the ROI on the program? And I find, and we talked about this before offline as well, about how I found it very difficult to kind of convince people that you should invest in people because everyone says, well, what's, what's the tangible ROI? Like, how can I get like immediate returns? In my perspective that A, the fact that it's a short-term mindset is definitely wrong for any kind of investment, but there's definitely the difficulty in some ways, in some ways not, of measuring the ROI on these kinds of programs where we empirically all know that 
people drive the business. And when they're successful, we've seen cases of amazing companies that have 20, 30 year old track, 30 year track records of success. And it's probably translated because they have amazing cultures, but a lot of companies haven't still found a way to kind of tack on numbers and metrics to that. So yeah. how, how do you measure the success of programs or the kind of success of take these kinds of initiatives um, and how it translates to the businesses like for-profit bottom line? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's not without its challenges, but, and I, I would say we're also pretty fortunate in that Bruce as the founder of the organization is probably one of our biggest cheerleaders for a lot of these programs. Uh, so there's a lot less um, selling of the idea. Um, but I mean, there is no, like how many units of leadership does this particular leader, you know, exhibit? Uh, it's, it, so it's, it's tricky to sort of put a, a number on that sort of thing. Um, what we'll generally look at is, um, I guess our, our team's uh, willingness to kind of go into innovative and uh, riskier idea spaces um, stuff like that, but it is it, the way that we measure it, I would say is, is still largely anecdotal just because it is so people focused and because it is uh, working with a lot of uh, unmeasurables. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that you, you can't really point to what's the secret sauce, but you can, you can tell that it's there when it's, when it is there. Right. And you can see it working when it is working. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of engagement scores that you'll see out of your team will probably uh, be a little bit more measurable or, uh, you know, the overall performance or, or willingness to kind of overperform um, happens more frequently in those teams where it's working well. Um, but yeah, I, I, if we had a, 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 the secret sauce or, or figured out a way to measure the secret sauce, we'd definitely uh, figure out how to patent it immediately and sell it uh, like crazy. But um, yeah, like I, I was talking about Simon Sinek before, and he has a, a really good talk about sort of the the idea of investing or developing leaders, and, and he kind of equates it to uh, the the idea of you know, do you love your, your you know thinking about your spouse or your significant other or a family member or whoever, like do you love that person? And the answer is usually yes, yeah, sure. It's like okay, well when when did you go from not love to love in that span of time and it's probably imperceptible you can't point to it and say like this this was the tipping point for me uh you know it was that variable that made me love that person um but you know it when you see it and you know that you're experiencing it um and so it's it's that same sort of thing unfortunately in a lot of the people spaces and maybe someday we'll be smart enough to figure out how to measure that um but right now it is very much sort of uh look and feel over uh hard hard numbers and, and solid metrics so one 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 thing i was thinking about is like sometimes there's these stories where you can point to where i think um there's like the example at 3m where you know the guy that made the post-it where it it kind of came out because people are given the space to be creative and be innovative and how like atlassian has hackathons where they try to develop new program products in, internally have there, have there been like examples like that um that you've seen at g adventures where someone was just super creative and it created a product and it's just like, wow, we can actually make money off of this. Absolutely. So in any of our leadership camps, um, we have uh, a presentation that people do. Uh, we kind of colloquially refer to it as Bruce on steroids. 
Um, but it's this idea of if you were Bruce for a day and you had uh, no limitations on um, you know, budget or worrying about logistics or anything, and you could just come up with a really cool business plan uh, for a new product or a new process or whatever, what would it be? And so every, every uh, leadership camp uh, attendee presents this, this presentation that they deliver in about 10 minutes and, and kind of walk people through it. Uh, and the number of things that we do today that have been born out of one of those ideas, uh, I mean, hundreds for sure, huh. uh, because they've got knock-on effects and that sort of thing. And even with uh, like things like the generator program, where it's like taking a, an existing system, but making it work better or something to that effect. So for sure, we can point to a lot of those things. The other thing that's really cool too, and I don't know if it's a little bit tangential, but um, Bruce wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called Loop Tale that tells the story of G Adventures. Uh, but what's more important about it is that the proceeds from that book went into a fund that we now refer to as the G Values Fund. And so for any of our CEOs, uh, our tour leaders that decide, you know, I'm ready to hang up my backpack, I'm, I'm done with my traveling days, we don't want to lose all of that knowledge and all of that, uh, you know, equity that they have in our brand. Um, and so what they'll do is they'll do a business pitch for an idea that they've had where it's like, I have an idea for an awesome hostel or a restaurant or something that would be a value add for one of our tour experiences. And then they'll do the business pitch and then our G values fund mentors will work with them to craft it into something that's a totally viable business. Uh, and now we've got some businesses all over the world. Um, you know, we've got uh, a, a, a restaurant in uh, Vietnam. We've got uh, a really cool hostel in, in Costa Rica. Um, at, at least a, I would say about a dozen or so now. Um, but all of them created out of, you know, their love for the way that we do things, but also having their own creativity for what they wanted to do with it. And a number of those people came out of either the leadership programs or various other programs and that sort of thing. Um, and it's a massive value add for us, obviously. We get to retain that talent um, in some way. But now we've got a brand new supplier in, in situ uh, that works like hand in glove for us in terms of our, our customer experience. Um, and so it's that kind of stuff. And, and even just the idea for that too came out of a lot of collaborating uh, with our team members and that sort of thing. So that, that's kind of where we can sort of see it working. Uh, you know, it's in that kind of space where we know that um, we, we might not be able to point to the secret sauce, but we know it's in there somewhere. Oh, that's awesome. I've, I think I've never actually met a company that actually did something like that. That's very phenomenal. Uh, I don't know if I told you, there's, there's, um, there's a company called Semco by Ricardo Semler, and his company incorporates something like that. We're kind of going on a tan tangential path, but I think you find his story interesting. So he, his view was the Semco, this giant industrials conglomerate was getting too big, and he he was conscious of like the 150 number of Dunbar and he wanted to kind of make the operation kind of get smaller. And so what he would do is he would tell uh, his kind of key employees like, hey, how about you start a company and kind of run your own thing and we'll just be one of your first customers. So I'll give you the money and I'll give you all the equipment. Just start a company and like run it on your own. We trust you. Yeah. But that was a way for the company to constantly kind of shrink down in size and maintain their own culture while it also allowed the other like the existing employees who kind of set up their own businesses and be successful but the main company would always still be a client of that and so that's how they would retain the relationship 
for people yep. who want to start their own thing or the company was just getting too big. But it's pretty cool how you guys created that program, even from like the leadership um, program that you had. And one thing that, that comes to mind is how do you, how did you kind of um, overlay this trust factor, like the idea that people don't have to be fearful of their ideas? Because sometimes mm-hmm. you might have an idea, but you might not want to actually bring it up in a leadership summit um, just because you don't want to be ridiculed or you don't want the boss to kind of think ill of you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wish there was some sort of magic wand for that one, but it really is just from doing the hard work of building that safety and belonging in teams and sort of from us, from a, a, a program uh, side of things, it's beating that drum over and over again and talking about the importance of, uh, you know, whether you're looking at it from a Maslow's hierarchy perspective or you're looking at it from, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Coyle writes, a, he has a great book called Culture Code that talks a lot about the importance of safety and belonging and all of that sort of stuff is it's the fundamentals for this. And so I'm a, a firm believer that you can't, trying to create an innovative idea is trying to create a video that's going to be viral. Um, you, you, you can't really do it on purpose. What you do is you create the conditions for success and do it over and over and over again. And, you know, law of averages says that eventually you're going to hit it out of the park. Um, and so same idea with creating innovation in our company is that as much as I would love to be able to crank up the innovation lever, um, it's more of an outcome in my opinion than it is a, a something that you can influence directly. And so um, by creating that safety and belonging in teams uh, and allowing them to sort of make mistakes and being okay with that, provided that people are accountable for it, um, and doing that over and over and over again and just starting with small wins and working their way up so that they, they build up sort of that risk tolerance. Um, I think that's how you get there. Um, and so, you know, making sure that the managers are um, aware of that and appreciative of, of their own journey through that space. And Bruce is a, a big fan of that, thankfully, as well, where, uh, you know, he's made way more mistakes than he has successes. But that's why when he is successful, it, it tends to have that greater impact because he's, he's learned all those lessons along the way. Um, and so the more that we can do that as teams, uh, I think that that's really where um, all of the, these messages finally kind of come together and, and pay off is, is in making sure that these teams can uh, feel comfortable. So that, that trust, uh, you know, we'd love to be able to say, oh, it's just, it's cooked into the, the culture. It's, what's cooked into the culture is the reminders and, and the, um, you know, the resources that people need in order to keep bringing their teams to that space. Uh, but really it's, it's, that's the heavy lifting of a manager or of a leader is to create that safety and belonging for a team so that all this really cool stuff can happen after the fact. Mm-hmm. And in regards to, we, we'll, you also refer to how purpose allows the company to kind of push through the tough points in the company's history. And G Adventures has been around for 30 years and you've, you've probably gone through a lot of different difficulties. And I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this current situation of the global pandemic of COVID-19, where it has hit the travel industry pretty hard. And I've been talking to some of my other friends who are in travel-based companies as well. And it's definitely um, a sector that's been hard. Hit. And I'm curious how you, you talked about this before we just recorded about how G Adventures is refreshing and rebooting the culture in response to it and how this could actually be a long-term change for the company as well. So 
can you kind of talk about that just kind of the how the impact has changed the business outlook but also how it's become this opportunity to refresh and reboot it and how the culture is going to evolve you think yeah so um i think well and i think you you hit the nail on the head there like travel it really it, it almost feels like we're at ground zero of this one because it, it affects so many moving parts of our business um and and we have done some downsizing as a result um but in in light of that and recognizing that we need to um kind of pull up our our socks again and and, and kind of double down there is a, an opportunity here to kind of reboot because I, I mean, we're probably not alone in this. Just about every team that works really hard at some point, it's like, man, I really wish we could just like stop for a second and catch our breath and say, well, you know, wish granted, be careful what you wish for. Right. Um, and so in this time where we have an opportunity to kind of pause and rethink our processes and that sort of stuff, but also um, consider like, what does it mean to show up as our full selves in, in this time, um, you know, we've kind of got this uh, term that we're kind of throwing around internally called like this, it's the squad. Like we're really kind of re regrouping and recognizing the importance of not just the fundamentals, but also uh, all those things that we always said, you know, I wish I had the time to get around to, to getting this stuff right. It's an opportunity for us to do that now. And so we, we definitely have, um, uh, the drive now to sort of come out of the other end of this uh, stronger than we were before and, and more motivated than we were before. Um, and, and we're doing so, you know, with, with fewer hands to sort of be able to help out there. Uh, and so how, how do we get around all of those challenges, but also still tackle it with even more energy than we had before. And so one of the things that we're looking at is kind of changing up um, the way that we look at our performance management and that kind of thing, and, and really kind of re-emphasizing some of the norms that we had before, but might have become, uh, you know, secondary to some of the other messages that we had out there and bringing forward some other stuff. So recognizing that, you know, the size that we were invariably, you know, inadvertent siloing starts to happen, but now, uh, that we've got a chance to sort of pause and, and reconnect with everybody in the company. Uh, and, you know, certainly just about every meeting now is done via Zoom uh, for everybody in the world, it seems. Um, here's an opportunity for us to connect with people that maybe we wouldn't have connected with uh, otherwise. And so we can sort of break down those silos, but also start instilling certain things where we're sure they're not going to come back. Um, and so it's like, you know, it's almost like we're, we've been put into a bit of a time machine where we've been sent back to a state of the business uh, you know, years earlier, but with all of our uh, knowledge still intact. And so we have the opportunity to grow again um, while sidestepping some of the, the challenges or the, the, the missteps that we might have had the first time around or some of the stuff that we weren't aware of. Uh, and we have a bit more visibility of those now. And so, you know, one of the things that we're looking at as an example is, is how do we build into the culture uh, the ability to ensure that I, as an individual contributor who is a part of an effective team um, that is performing really well, make sure that uh, my team is crossing the finish line at the same time as all the other teams uh, so that we don't get to that point. You know, in, in tribal leadership, they talk about that idea of, you know, we're great and they're not. Uh, and, you know, nobody ever does that uh, intentionally. It just kind of happens. Uh, but how do we make sure that we kind of 
take advantage of this opportunity where everybody is especially driven to, to see a, a comeback story uh, emerge and um, make sure that all of these teams work together. And so like even teams that had different names before now just kind of collectively refer to themselves as one big team uh, and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, we're still, as anything in this COVID period, you know, changes are, are fast and furious and we're, and we're still um, learning the, the latest of the new normals that comes out on a, a seemingly daily basis. Um, but we're equally, as, as sad as we are to have seen the impacts that it's had on the industry and certainly our teams uh, and, and uh, all of the hard work that so many people have helped contribute to going forward, um, there's a lot of energy still in terms of, you know, how we want to turn this around for uh, the community so that uh, we can come back to them even stronger than we were before um, and, and really sort of um, uh, avoid any of the, the, the easy traps uh, that a lot of companies fall into uh, previously. Um, but it's, it's a work in progress. And uh, the, the nice thing is that a lot of people are, are, are thinking about all of these pieces as well as, uh, you know, getting all of our ducks in a row for uh, the second that everything kind of starts moving back to a world uh, that's ready for travel again. So Nice. And it's, as we kind of um, get to the final legs of our conversation, I'd be curious to know, like, what what leaders or organizations do you admire personally? And they could be, maybe they could, they're organizations that you kind of have, have an aspiration of G Adventures kind of getting to in terms of like a culture mm -hmm. standpoint, or just kind of you personally just look at as one of, one of many like model companies to like look at. Yeah. I mean, I, I admire a lot of different companies for different reasons. One that I've been looking at um, more recently is a company called um, Menlo Innovations, I think it is, or Menlo Insights, might have the name wrong, uh, but Richard Sheridan um, is the uh, founder of the company um, and he wrote a book called Joy Inc. Um, but what's really neat about that company is it's a software house, um, but uh, transparency is huge uh, there to the point where everybody knows how much each other is making and it's actually just posted on a wall and if somebody wants a raise, then they basically just sort of say like, I think I'm now in this band of responsibilities and it's the teams that decide like yes or no. Um, every desk uh, has one computer and two people at it to sort of force collaboration. So some really neat stuff happening in that space. I don't know how applicable it is generally because it is a fairly homogenous organization, um, but really, really neat stuff happening there. And I, I, I'm always uh, interested in how that's going. Um, uh, some people that I listen to a lot, uh, I, I mentioned before, like Seth Godin or, or, or um, Simon Sinek, um, Brene Brown, I think is really coming into her own now in, in light of all of the uncertainty in the world. Um, but uh, I've been a big fan of her new podcast uh, and admire a lot of the stuff that she talks about there. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that it's, it's those kinds of people and it's just like even looking at things a little bit differently, like as an example for um, the way that teams can come together. Some of the stuff that I'll look at is like the way that JJ Abrams puts together a table read of a script uh, for you know a, a big epic movie or something to that effect. Um, I think that there's um, 
there's a, a, a lot of lessons to be learned from not just the, the traditional business uh, sense. I mean, there's a lot of research already that's gone into sort of looking at things from a military perspective or first responders and that sort of thing and what leadership looks like there. But I think that there's a lot of leadership to be found in even just sort of uh, the teaching side of things, like talking to teachers. So I was, I was speaking to somebody that works for the uh, Toronto District School Board, um, and he's looking at creating a set of norms for um, courageous contributions in the uh, space between teachers and parents so that uh, people can lean into difficult conversations talking about students uh, without having to sort of cede any high ground uh, for um, either the, the parent's perspective or the teacher's perspective. Um, and that to me is just like fascinating knowing full well how difficult it must have been for my parents to have to go to the, the parent-teacher meetings back in, in the days when I was still in school. So um, I think that there's a lot to be learned there. And one of the spaces that I'm still kind of curious about myself is looking at um, all of the people, and I, I don't know how to find these people just yet, but I think that there's something to be said about talking to the people that have done all the same steps as these uh, successful people, um, but haven't seen the same level of success and looking at what's missing from the equation. Because I think um, successful people are overrepresented in our search for success. Uh, if that makes sense. And so I think that there's, there's, uh, I think a broader conversation would be helpful in terms of figuring out what is and isn't working for those that are applying themselves in similar ways, but haven't gotten there yet. Um, so that, that's kind of where my head's at these days. Wow. That's pretty cool. How, I, I love the, the last bit you mentioned as well. Yeah. Like, cause <clears throat> everyone knows the successful companies, but there's also a ton who haven't succeeded. They might have done the exact same things. It's like, yeah, what's the missing yeah. thing there? How how has the journey been on finding those? Like, what what's been your method? If, uh, if there has been one on finding it's, those, it's it's yeah. I, I would say a shot in the dark, really. Yeah. Like right now, it's it's hard because not too many people are willing to put up their hands and say, yes, I run an unsuccessful <laughs> business. Come talk to me. Uh, so it's it's challenging in that way, um, but. Um, yeah, and I don't know if it's going to take you know a smarter researcher than me to figure it out, but I think that there's a, a book in there somewhere for like all of the successful failures and the failed successes at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, this was super fun, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights, experience, and wisdom with myself and my audience. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my it. pleasure. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, no worries.